as we turn our attention to this passage of Scripture this morning, as we finish up our series on Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, now, I have to give you a little bit of a warning. Um, when we read this passage with 21st century eyes, uh, it can be very dangerous. Lady at the end of the first service told me, she said, Yo, Jim, I was really worried what you were going to do with this. That's okay. We've been studying and learning through this book that Paul is inviting us to live a different way. And I, I, I want to invite us to read or listen this morning, not with our ears, but hopefully with the ears of someone from the first century and see just how revolutionary these words are. I'm going to uh, start this morning in actually uh, chapter 3, verse 17, uh, and then go through 4, verse 2. So let's listen for this, the word of the Lord. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching over you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of my favorite stories of scripture comes to us from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 17. I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon or throughout the week. Let me give you a brief synopsis of it. Paul and Silas, the missionaries, they're on a Jesus mission. And they arrive in the city of Thessalonica. And they stay in the city for three weeks, and they're preaching, and they're sharing, and they're talking about Jesus. Acts tells us that um, some Jews and some God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women all began following Jesus because of their work. But Acts also tells us some got jealous. This jealous group, they go to the marketplace and they get a handful of troublemakers all riled up. And in no time, there's this loud, angry riot of protesters who are marching down the streets at Thessalonica. And the mob, they find their way to the home of a man named Jason and they ransack the place. They can't find Paul or Silas. And so the mob instead grab this guy, Jason, and a few others, and they take them to the city council. Now, here's why this story is my favorite. See, the mob, they stand before the leaders of the city, and they say this. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, and now they're here disturbing our city, too. My favorite translation says they're turning the world upside down with this way. The mob accused Paul and all of the believers of treason against Caesar. And the council makes Jason and his friends pay this huge bail, and then they're finally released, and Paul and Silas are sent packing. We've got to calm it down. (laughs) 
Now, there's a lot of reasons to love this story, but my favorite has to be in that charge that's put against Paul and Silas and Jason and these followers of Jesus. What is the charge? They're causing trouble all over the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to put that on my business card. Pastor Jim, chief troublemaker for Jesus. Doesn't that sound great? I don't think Joan and Eric are too excited about that, but you know, Paul and Silas, they do this thing in Thessalonica where they tell everybody about Jesus, the Jesus story, and they urge folks to know this Jesus who died and rose again. So as I think about that, it makes me wonder, um, why why was this group so jealous? And what would cause a bunch of troublemakers to be spurred on to riot with claims of treason? I mean, troublemakers they make trouble, right? They're like toddlers. They toddle. Um, But to be able to attract such a large crowd, enough that the city council has to to jump in because everything's in turmoil, that's a whole different tale. Did Did you notice who becomes believers in my synopsis? Some Jews, some God fearing Greeks, and a few prominent women. Now, what about this collection is really at issue? I'm sure there were many Jews who weren't happy about that first group. I'm sure the troublemakers didn't like the second group, but I believe it's that third group that's really the sticking point. Another translation says, quite a few of the wives of leading men. That's the problem right there. You see, the women of prominent leaders in this city were choosing Jesus. They were choosing Jesus over their gods. They were choosing Jesus over the structures and the the standards of the city. And it was disturbing everything. It was social chaos. It was not the norm. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at this word disciple a little bit more. Try to uncover what that word meant and what it means for us today. But you don't have to be a historian or a biblical scholar or even a believer to realize that when the Jesus movement starts breaking out, the whole world gets changed. Acts is filled with the story of disciples, followers of Jesus, who get out and they challenge all kinds of structures that are going on. And the story in Acts 17 isn't the only time when the Christians are accused of acting, of acting treasonous. They're, they were regularly accused of rejecting Caesar as their Lord and King and God. And the Christians were okay with that. They proudly would say, Caesar isn't Lord, a title that he wanted, but they would say, Christ is Lord. The movement of the church throughout history has always been different from the movement of the prevailing broken culture. Let me say that again, just so I make sure we all get it, okay? The movement of the church has always been different from the movement of the prevailing broken culture. The the moment of resurrection for Jesus was a new beginning bursting throughout the order of creation. Something that said, what is doesn't have to be anymore. It's a do-over. It was a revolution. And you know what? It still is. Did you know that you're a revolutionary because you're sitting here this morning? You rebel you. (laughs) 
The problem at Thessalonica and all these other places uh, that the world is getting turned upside down was that this treasonous movement is affecting not just people in church, but it's affecting the very basic structures of life. Namely, it's challenging the most honored foundation of society, our family unit. That's what the church does with the message. Now, we think of the, the family unit in a very nuclear way, or nuclear way, whichever you prefer to translate. It's a very 20th century understanding of family. See, prior to World War II, families always including the extended members, right? In the ancient world, a family was any person who lived inside of a household. In fact, that's a better word, household. A household could include grandparents and parents and children and cousins and employees and slaves and even mistresses. And the unit was ruled, that's an important word, ruled, by the paterfamilia, the head of the household, usually the oldest male. In some cases, wealthy Roman widowed women could rule their home. But even they were subject to other males and were very vulnerable to this male-dominated society. And the, the rule of the Potter Familia was absolute. It was unquestionable. It went where he went. Young boys were trained and prepared to rule their households in the same way. And wives were to dutifully manage the inner workings of the home and submit entirely to any wish, request, or demand that her husband would make. The daughters in the household were taught to follow that example, follow example of mom, to learn those chores and prepare to soon dutifully serve her future husband. Now, children were taught those future roles, but they were to absolutely and unquestionably do everything that the Potter Familia had to say. They were, they were to be kept out of sight unless the father viewed them as useful to a situation. In some ancient areas of, of Rome, children were often sold as slaves because the potter familia had no use. He was done. Didn't need any more. If a child wasn't wanted at birth, the father could just as easily abandon the baby and no one would question. And there were no orphan, orphanages. Slaves were part of that household, but that didn't mean they were treated any better than our, our imagination Many were little more than just objects destined for nothing more than just the leader's or the ruler's comfort. Some were used to flaunt wealth of their masters. Others were used to work grueling hours and do demeaning chores. Roman slaves were to call their owners dominos, which meant lord and master. This was the normal setting for the Roman world, and there are a few, a few places that were different. Uh, in Judaism, women had a little bit more standing, and I already said that there were Roman widows uh, who could exercise considerable power. But overall, this household structure, this potter familia who ruled everything was the way it was. And so family values meant something completely and totally different. And equality? Psh, that was about as far out an idea as a crucified man rising from the dead. These things didn't happen. But then a crucified man did rise from the dead, and a whole new construct was introduced to the world. Jesus himself, he sits with every class of people, doesn't he? When you read the Gospels, rich and poor, elite and slave, religious and rebellious. He had 12 male disciples. We all know that. But he also has this large group of women who support his ministry and traveled with him and cared for the group. 
And Bethany, Mary and Martha, they're dear friends of Jesus. And when Mary assumes this position, sitting at the feet of her rabbi, of her teacher, as a disciple, no one gets bothered by that. No one tells her to go get in your place. Well, nobody except Martha, whose casserole was about to burn. The first person to see Jesus alive is who? A woman. In fact, the first group of people to see Jesus alive is a bunch of women. In the upper room, we're told that 120 are there gathered when the Holy Spirit encounters them. And all of them includes, guess who? These women. Peter and Paul may get the headlines, but in the early days of the church, the current saying behind every good man is a better woman still rang true. Lydia was a house church leader, so was Chloe. We have Priscilla joining her husband Aquila as church founders and leaders together in active ministry. Make no mistake, the women of the New Testament were suddenly thrust into a position that nobody saw coming. And in this letter to Colossians, Paul has already said that there's no Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. To the church at Ephesus, he also added there's no male or female as a designation. He says we're all one in him. In his day, Paul was one of the most shocking egalitarian leaders standing. His call to equality was rebellious. It was turning the world upside down. It was challenging the social order, and it was treasonous. Now, I've said a lot already this morning. I haven't even gotten to the scripture. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> but I, ha- I have to do this because this passage and others like it have been brutally used to suppress women rather than to invite everybody to see the social upheaval that these words offer. And that's a shame. I had one person ask me, Jim, don't preach on this passage because it's been used in her words to keep me in my place. That's, that's awful. This passage and this word submit, they're not words of demand. They don't create a male-dominated society. They are words of rebellion, words that take on this household structure in the ancient Roman world, and they call it to something more. Those Roman households, they had these rules, these codes of conduct. And Paul takes those codes of conduct and he turns them around and he shows them that Jesus' offer of new life offers a better structure for our society. Paul's instructions can't be separated from that invitation that he's given to Colossians, that they are a new and chosen holy people, that they're called to put on this new, new nature and to become like the Creator The household that he sets up shares. They they can't be separated from the clothing of ourselves and tenderhearted mercy and kindness and gentleness and patience and making love or making allowance for each other's faults and forgiving one another and letting love bind one another together in this perfect harmony and peace. You can't separate those. When you hear someone say submit, that Colossians 3 passage, without the other part, they've hijacked Paul. They've hijacked the word of God. Ooh. Paul has set up his household instructions to show that mutual respect and humility is the way of the follower of Jesus. So again, when we read wives submit, we can't read those words on their own as as it's so easy to do. Paul's readers would have heard that word and they would have went, whoa, hold on, Paul. You're messing with things here. They're expecting wives, you're lesser than your husbands, so get in line. That's not what Paul says. 
Thanks be to God, right? Ladies, right? Ah, there you are. The word submit in our English vernacular means lower yourself or become a doormat. That's not Paul's idea. He, not here in Colossians, not in any other place in the writings ascribed to him. The idea of this root word submit is choosing not to take on something. In this case, not to take on this role of ruling. If the old code is husband or potter familia ruling things, Paul is saying, wives, don't do that. Don't take on this temptation in your new equality and freedom to rule over him. Instead, choose a mutual deference or a joint cooperative, cooperativeness. It's in this context the idea is not subservient or know your place, but a choosing of joint equality, of joint service, where someone else's needs come above yours. And Paul's command to the husbands is an offer of equal response. Guys, love, not rule, not demand. Not, and, and love is not a, simply a matter of affection. It's not a feeling. It's not even attraction. Love involves an active and an unceasing care for your wife's well-being. In another place, Paul says, love her the same way Christ loved the church. Can, can we just remember, how did Christ love the church? Oh, that's right, he died for her. He died for her. By the way, notice what Paul says after the submission part. As is fitting unto the Lord. I had a woman once told me, she says, well, my husband doesn't want me to do all this stuff. I have to submit. I have to he doesn't want to go to church, and that's biblical submission, Right? not as is fitting unto the Lord. That's not helping your family. No, Jesus, is it? The authority of the household, the paterfamilias, continues to play out in the social structure, but only as is fitting unto the Lord. There is an essential dignity in women here that is not found anywhere else in the philosophy of the day. Paul was way ahead of his time and the liberality in which he insisted on equal rights between husbands and wives, especially in this marital relationship. So after the, the spouses thing are all sorted out, <laughs> right, Paul then turns his attention and says, children obey. Now that's very sound, similar sounding to the Old Testament rules and the code of the pagans and yada yada, but the obedience here is, is very different. In the Roman world, if you didn't obey as a child, severe consequences could come to you. Instead, Paul is saying, no, no, no. Let's invite our children to the table. How many of you all remember sitting at the children's table at Thanksgiving? As the older I've gotten, the more I've wanted to go back to the children's table. <laughs> but here's the thing. When you were first invited to the adult's table, how proud were you? Paul is saying, we're all at the table together. We're treating our children as, 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 as equal individuals, full members, that full members that come with a full expectation that respecting parents, even when our parents are wrong, is a way of honoring our God. Wow. Not over here in the corner, but with us. And parents, namely our fathers, were not to irritate our children. Now, I love to mess with my boys. You should have seen my wife when I said this earlier. She went, yep. I tease and I joke with them all the time. And sometimes, sure, they get irritated. But the word that Paul is, is using isn't that kind of idea. 
The word is provoke, and it carries this idea of making their life a burden. That's totally different, isn't it? Don't goad them and rouse them into a place where they lose their very souls. Paul finally mentions slaves and masters, and, and I know we all wish that he would have condemned slavery at the very beginning. It would have saved a whole lot of heartache. Paul doesn't take on this huge social structure at this time. Instead, what he does is he cleverly undermines it. He doesn't accept it, but he invites slaves to think of their inherent value as being followers of Jesus. Slaves were objects, not humans. Paul goes, no, 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 no. You have an inherent value as a child of the living God. So serve your masters as, as, as if you're serving him. And to the slave owners, he reminds them, you're nothing more than a slave yourself, a slave to the master. So treat those within your household with fairness, with righteousness. That's very different. So you see, Paul, when Paul drops these household codes, he isn't just saddling up next to society. He's saying that because of Jesus, everything has changed. Everything's different. All that our society holds dear is challenged. There's a new order. There's a new way of doing things. One that doesn't bluster and puff up under a broken system, but one that shows what redemption does in the middle of it all. Paul's universal challenge still holds true. We, the followers of Jesus, are to be different. We're to be weird, beautifully, as unto Christ, different for the world. We're to show the world what family looks like, an extended household. Hey, look to the person next to you and realize something real quick. Look to them. This is your family. Yeah, that weird person. This is your family. We are to show the world what beauty looks like. And it's right here. We're to, to love our spouses and mutually choose the other over self. We're to honor our parents. It's the easiest thing we can do for them. We can raise our children in a way that helps them experience the freedom of Christ. A freedom, by the way, which is very different from our warped ideas of freedom. To point them in a direction that lets them see Jesus in the weirdos next to us. Which means that freedom is not necessarily going to come on a baseball field or a volleyball court, a football field or a tennis court. Ooh, meddling preacher. We can work wherever we are. We can go wherever we end up going as if we're doing all of this for the master. And why? Because Jesus changes everything. Changes our home. Changes everything else beside it. Creates this social upheaval, this treasonous group of people that go out and say, nah, it's totally different. This is what as is fitting unto the Lord means. It means, yeah, we've met the love of Jesus. We're clothed in his love. We're new creatures. And here we are, world, come and take a look. So my friends, 
this morning. Husbands, how you doing? Wives, speaks to you in this. Young people, it's the easiest thing you can do. Those of us who are going to go to work tomorrow, or go to Chick-fil-A tomorrow, or Starbucks tomorrow, or the mall tomorrow, or anywhere tomorrow, how will your work be as unto the Lord? It's this, this is an opportunity that Paul is giving to us even today, 20 centuries later, to stand up and be different because he changed, Jesus changes everything. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious and loving God, we thank you for this day. and We thank you again for the opportunity to turn our attention to your word. Lord, we know and we acknowledge the pain and the hurt that some of these words have been, uh, as they've been pulled out, have been used to hurt other people. For that, Lord, we are brokenhearted. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have joined that. Lord, help us remember that um, that you've called us to be something a whole lot more. That as spouses, we're to be able to see you and that person that we have covenanted to. That we're to honor our parents in such a way that shows the world, wow, that's different. We're to work in such a way that we're not just doing our best when the boss is looking, but all the time because you're always watching. Lord, thank you for these hard, difficult words and for the hope that they give us. Lord, I pray this morning that as we leave these, these, the, 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 the confines of this building, as we go through these doors, that we would find new and exciting ways to be weird, different followers for you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We give you thanks for it is in your name that we offer this prayer. And all God's people said, Amen.